2 Peter 3.18. But grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. And Lord, we do thank you so much that your word is alive. We thank you that it speaks directly to our hearts and pierces us. Would you give us ears to hear what the Spirit would speak to his church this morning? Lead this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Good morning. Good to be with you guys. Let's pull this up. We're going to have slides today. It's, you know, all the years that I was uh, teaching at the Bible college, I kind of got used to, to using slides for the classes, and now I feel as though I'm, I'm doing a disservice if I don't have them. So we're going to be using these today, and hopefully they'll be, they'll be helpful uh, as we follow along. So Pastor Mike and Lauren are in Colorado, suffering terribly there as they do their tour of um, the Rocky Mountain National Park. He sent me a picture of them up on a mountaintop at 12,000 feet. They were above the clouds. And he said, you know, it's funny. I, I actually feel like I'm closer to the Lord when I'm, when I'm up here on the mountain. I said, bro, you're having, you're having a bonafide mountaintop experience, right? Isn't that awesome? A little taste of, of heaven on earth, which is what we all need so much. Well, if you've got your Bible open already to 2 Peter chapter 3, we're going to be looking at just really one verse this morning. These are Peter's final words in his letter to the church. And what is significant about what we've just read here is that, you know, a man's last words uh, are, are significant because if it's the last thing you're going to say, you're going to make sure that what you, what you have in there really encompasses the most important things. And we've read that here. Now, to summarize uh, what Peter is exhorting the church to do as we grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus is he, he's just come through chapter 3 talking about the day of the Lord, the return of Jesus when all that we know in the material universe will be dissolved with fervent heat. He speaks of the elements, the very, the very elements of matter, and he says all of these things will be dissolved. And he says and if, if we know these things as believers, then our, our, our focus, our trajectory is to be heaven-bound. It is to be uh, looking towards that new heaven and new earth that God will make at the return of Christ. And then he contrasts the world and the error of the lawless ones, those who do not know Jesus, with the church. And he says, you know, don't be led astray with the error of the wicked and lose your firm footing. He says, instead, instead, grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. And so that's where we're picking it up. <clears throat> Verse 17, just before this, is where... Uh, he gave that sort of contrast. And so the very first thing we want to look at is growth. This is, again, in contrast to the warning of the error of lawless living. And so, really, he's bringing this attention to our conduct. 
You see, as we await the return of Christ, the entirety of the Christian experience is kind of a twofold, or I'll say it's two sides to the same coin. As Christians, we don't live by a list of things to avoid. You know, if you're on a certain kind of a diet, uh, you have a list of things to avoid. Oh, I got I to gotta cut back on the carbs, you know. I was just talking to somebody this morning that said that to me because our brother Ron brought the donuts, and I said, hey, have some donuts. He's like, no, nah, I got to watch the carbs, right? So you have your list of things to avoid. But that's not what Christianity is. The focus of Christianity is on the things that we are to pursue. So when the scriptures tell us, hey, avoid this, it never stops there. It always says, hey, pursue this, because our focus is on what we are to pursue. So that's what's happening here. So as we await the Lord's return, we are paying attention to our growth in contrast to the stagnancy of the world. We're paying attention to not being carried away in these things, but we're pursuing the right things. We're pursuing the ways of the Lord. And again, this is in, as an alternative to losing our stability, which is what he talks about in verse 17. In fact, I'm going to read that since we haven't heard it yet this morning. My Bible is literally falling apart. Let's see, I've got some Peter here. That's good. You, therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked. Now, depending on the Bible translation you have, it might say um, steadfastness like the New King James. If you have an ESV, it's going to say your stability. The idea there is a firm footing in our walk with Christ, a firm uh, footing in our conviction of truth, what we claim to believe, that we wouldn't get carried away with other influences and kind of lose that stability, which certainly is a potential danger for us. See, Peter's warning of it because it's a possibility, and I can relate to this because I have been there more than once in my life, even as a believer. In my quest to grow in knowledge and in my studies and seminary and things like that, you have to become exposed to different things, different ideas, um, different literature, and sometimes because I have a very curious mind, I can dive really deep down the rabbit hole, and I can become caught up in in different ideologies and philosophies and find myself spending so much time on these alternative ideas that I'm being pulled away from the main idea where I need to be focusing on. And you don't even realize it. That's the danger of losing your stability. If you guys have ever been to the beach and floated out on a raft out in the ocean, you know what can happen when you don't pay attention for a few minutes, right? If you're out there, your eyes are closed, you're just taking in the sun, the rays of the sun, and, you know, five minutes goes by, you you open up your eyes, you look, and you don't know where your umbrella is, you don't know where your things are, you're probably a few hundred feet further away from shore, maybe even down shore, down further away, and you're far from where your things are, you can't even see where they are. And panic begins to hit. How am I going to get back now? This current has pulled me away. 
because I wasn't paying attention. That's kind of the idea that Peter's giving. So he's giving this, first of all, as a contrast, right? This command to grow in contrast to just sort of taking your hands off the wheel and letting nature take its course. We don't do that as believers, right? We're even here this morning because we are looking to grow in our faith, in our walk with Christ. Now, growth as a command is kind of interesting. Uh, Someone mentioned to me earlier after first service, I'm going to point out what this means, the present active. Sorry, that's the Bible college teacher of me. This just means that the, the, the word used here is in a specific verb form that means keep on keeping on. Keep on increasing, which is the idea of growth, right? Continue to increase. But what's odd about this is that we don't normally grow things by telling them to grow, right? I mean, I wish that was the case for me where I could, you know, go out of my backyard and plant a garden and just say, grow, you know? And that's all I have to do, speak to the carrots, grow. Come on, and there they are, right? That'd be awesome. The only one who can do that is God. Only God can cause growth by his word, as he did in creation, when he called forth from the ground all the vegetation, all the things that we have in the world today, even speaking into existence the life of man, right? Breathing into his nostrils the breath of life. All that we have has been created by the word of God. And so in a sense, God is commanding growth to come forth in our life by his word. And of course, we have his written word and that contributes to our growth. But what accompanies this command is the enabling power and sustenance of God. He enables us to grow. So he's not saying, hey, go, go dig a ditch, but I'm not going to give you a shovel, right? As he calls us to grow and commands us, his enabling power accompanies, accompanies this command. And we're going to look more at that in a moment. And I want to just lay this groundwork because what we want to see this morning is that this is a twofold process. On one hand, God is commanding it, he enables it, but there's more that's going to take place on our part, which we'll, we'll see in a moment. So he's setting the expectation for us. He's setting the expectation that, hey, in his closing statement, we are to make growth as believers a priority, right? Don't focus on the lostness of the world and all of its craziness. Focus on yourself growing. Make sure that you grow. So how do we do this? How do we make growth a priority for ourselves? How do we prioritize this and take action for it? Well, obviously there are some things that we do to pursue growth, and there's two sides to this, which is what we're going to look at now. And first, by very definition and the nature of life, growth happens as a byproduct of life, right? Uh, It's by God's design, it's built in. If you Just look at the children's ministry. You go over there. You see all these kids running around with high energy. They're bursting with life. Talk to their parents. They probably have to buy new shoes every six months. 
And we don't have any control over that. The only thing we have control over is how much we feed them, right? We've got to feed them a lot because they grow a lot. When they become teens, you've got to get a third job because of how much they eat, mainly my son. But, but we don't control that. That's just built in, right? Growth happens because God has infused every living thing with what I would call a self-propelled growth process by design. But the growth of anything can be taken for granted until a problem happens that causes that growth to become stagnant or it begins to show signs that something is wrong. We just had this happen. Uh, we recently moved into our home here in Hell, and um, we had this big, what would have been a beautiful tree on the front yard. It was an ash. And uh, we moved in in the wintertime, so we couldn't tell if, you know, what condition it was in, because in the winter, nothing is growing, right? There's life, but it's kind of underground. You don't really see it. And you have to wait until springtime comes so you can tell, oh, is it going to produce fruit? Is this, is this thing alive or is it dead? And sure enough, spring came. All the neighbor's trees were beginning to bud. They were blossoming. Grass was growing faster than I could cut it. But that tree was just standing there, and all it kept doing was dropping limb after limb after limb onto the grass, into the gutters. And I'm waiting for this thing, and I'm like, you know, with the storms that we're getting, I started to become a little concerned that this thing is going to fall in the house, somebody's going to get hurt, it's going to take out, you know, half the side of our house. I got my daughter's bedroom right there, and... Um, I waited long enough to tell, okay, nothing is happening. I mean, it's standing there, but there is nothing going on beneath the surface. And there's a problem. So I had it inspected, and sure enough, it was dead and in need of, of being removed. So what Peter's talking about is, yes, God calls forth growth by his word, but there's still an element of our attention and consideration to our own growth, that we would not be caught by surprise falling apart like that tree was, dropping limbs, maybe being taken out by a storm when it comes, but that we would have this steady upward trajectory towards Christ, growing constantly. So while it is a byproduct, we pay attention to it, because growth is also a partnership. So, in this partnership, right, we've entered into a dynamic relationship with God. He's given us His Holy Spirit. His Spirit speaks to us. His Spirit empowers us. His Spirit enables us, guides us. But there are certain things that are needed, even with God's design, for growth to happen. If you do plant a garden, like I mentioned, right, there are certain things that are necessary. You need the sun, the rays of the sun. You need water. You need the nutrients in the soil, right? All of these facilitate growth. And so while God has infused us with this propensity and this ability to grow, there is an element of stewardship that we have as believers to give attention towards our growth that we would not be caught 
by surprise, that we don't close our eyes, take our hands off the wheel, and before we know it, uh, we find ourselves being stagnant. When I lived in Serbia where I found my wife, the only woman who would say yes, there was nobody in America, God had to bring me to Serbia to find somebody who would marry me, that's how I knew she was the one for me because she said yes. Just kidding. Serbia is uh, in, in Vojvodina, the northeast part of the country where my wife is from. Uh, one of the strong industries is, um, well, it's agricultural, but they, they, they produce a tremendous amount of sunflowers. So sunflower seeds, uh, sunflower oil, and you can drive through the countrysides and just see nothing but miles and miles of sunflower fields. And being a high school dropout, I didn't know that sunflowers have a unique characteristic, right? What do they do? Well, actually, as the sun rises, the sunflower raises up and it turns and it faces the sun and it will track the sun in order to take in the rays of the sun. Pretty fascinating. And I love that picture because, in a sense, this is what we are doing. We are setting our faces, you know, towards the sun, S-O-N, constantly tracking him, taking in from him. This is kind of our part to grow. Yes, it's a work of God. Paul says to the Philippian church, he says, I'm confident of this very thing, that God will complete that good work he's begun in you until the day of Christ Jesus. But then there's a partnership that's involved. So it's not entirely on us to become what God has designed us to be as new creations in Christ. But we're also not entirely removed from the process. There is a relationship here. And I've been learning a lot about this and being convicted quite a bit uh, because I, I was crazy enough to sign up for a marathon this month. And it's an incredible amount of training, way too many hours outside of the house, uh, a lot of hours on my feet, <clears throat> just running, pounding the pavement. And it's been great in a lot of senses because it's been humbling. And um, there's, there are so many parallels that God is teaching me while I'm out there running. And one of them is simply, you know, there's this whole process, there's a, there's a, there's a training regimen you have to follow. Each day of the week has a specific thing you're supposed to do. Every run has a purpose. This one's going to be four miles. You're running at this pace. The next day you're going to do, uh, you know, you're going to go run up a hill, back and forth, up and down. People probably think I'm crazy. Why am I doing that? You know, uh, then you have a day off, and then you have a long run, and so forth. And you have to drink a lot of water. You have to uh, make sure that you are fueling yourself properly. You have to get rest. And so there's this incredible regimen. But it's a major investment, and I've been feeling guilty about it, partly because God speaks through my wife. <laughs> and, you know, it's true. I'm spending a lot of time out of the house for this, and I, I can't wait. I'm in my tapering week, week right now, two more weeks, and I'm done. And I can't say whether I'll sign up for another one, but here's, here's what I'm learning. All of that programming is geared towards one specific goal. I have to constantly do the training, monitor where I am, look at where I need to be on race day, 
according to the calendar and evaluate my progress. Am I progressing? Am I becoming more like the goal time I need to hit for this marathon? So as believers, and where this is convicting for me is, am I actually making that kind of an investment in my own life to become like the target goal of, of Jesus? I can tell you that I'm not putting that many hours a day in, and that is convicting for me. But there's an incredible parallel here. So in the same way, we are to choose to put on Christ daily. This is what uh, Paul tells us uh, in Corinthians and Ephesians and Colossians, right? Our ultimate goal, what we, are, what we are pressing on towards, is not a finish time in our faith, but it is a person. We are becoming like Jesus. That is the goal of the Spirit's work in our life. This is the goal, the motivation of why and how we partner with the Lord in this new life we have. Paul says to, to, to the Roman church, in chapter 8, verse 29, he says, we have been predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, to the image of Jesus. That is what we are becoming more and more like. And so we make use then of all that God has provided for us for life and godliness. Earlier in this letter, 2 Peter, this is what he said to the church. He said, we have been given all things that pertain to life and godliness. So we, we feed in the scriptures, right? We, we water the soul, so to speak, in prayer. We, 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 we take up the nutrients of the soil of God's people as we gather together. These are the things that facilitate growth. It's one of the main reasons we are here today in church. It's one of the, the main purposes of why we do what we do, where we dedicate time to the teaching of, of the Scriptures. While we make time for fellowship, because, listen, learning isn't just from text. It's from one another. We all are living epistles in the body of Christ. We're learning from one another. And the, the reality is, brothers and sisters, if we're not pressing forward, pushing against the resistance, because the world is, is pretty backwards, would you agree? It's going in the opposite direction of what God is doing in us. And so unless there's a, a, a purpose within our hearts in our decision-making process to how we do, how we spend our time and what we're going to do, Unless that's happening and we are deliberately pushing forward, we will find ourselves soon being kind of drawn in the direction of the world. We'll be drawn away. It, it's an upstream swim in this world. And listen, if you're, if you're feeling that tension, the influences around you, the pressure that you have at work to conform to the thinking of other people, political parties, whatever it may be, listen, if you feel that tension... That is because you are alive in Christ. It's a good sign. Don't be discouraged that there is tension. That's a good thing. That's how life is supposed to be. In this world, you will have tribulation. Jesus said that. But be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. So 
what exactly are we to grow in? How are we to increase? And how do we measure the progress, like the marathon illustration? Well, the very first thing that God gives us is grace. He says, grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. I love that this is first. Now, why is this first? Well, it's first, I believe, for two reasons. One, it's first in priority. But also it's first in necessity because really what would knowledge be without grace? Where would we be without grace, right? To know Christ is to know his grace. It's to be impacted by his grace. You cannot know Christ and not be impacted by his grace. That's why you and I are all here this morning. We're here because the grace of God has impacted our life. And if you haven't fully received that grace yet, you're not quite sure how you ended up here. Maybe a friend invited you. You're still being drawn by that grace of God. God is taking that initiative. And if it were not for his grace, we would not know anything really about him. So grace has to be First, it is the foundation for what's to come. Listen, when I was drawn to Christ, I didn't know very much of anything. When I look back, after learning and understanding how God has worked by His Spirit in me, then I could say, oh yes, uh, it was the grace of God. It all starts there. This is, this is the foundation for it. And so, When we speak of grace, we're not talking about the grace of a ballerina and and, and the way she has grace in her steps. That's a common use of the word in the world, but biblically speaking, grace is the unmerited favor of God. Undeserved. Getting something from God that we don't deserve. We're not here because you and I have been good men and women, good boys and girls. We're here because of one person who was perfect, Jesus. It's not because of our performance, it's because of a person, Jesus, and what he did, what he performed as he gave his life in our stead to atone for our sins. It's grace. Now, as we talk about grace and uh, grace being getting what we don't deserve, that we never earned God's favor, We need to remember, number one, that it starts that way, it continues that way, we never get away from that way. The entirety of our life in Christ is by grace. Doesn't mean that there isn't a response to that grace, but that is the base for it. And we have to give passing mention to mercy. Because that's the flip side of the beauty of the redemption plan that God has. Grace is getting what we don't deserve. It's getting a position in Christ that we never earn for ourselves. Mercy is not getting what we deserve, right? What do we deserve? What do we deserve? We deserve judgment. We deserve the wrath of God. It's fair to say, hey, listen, whether we like it or not, whether we think we're better than some more than others, Uh, We all deserve the wrath of God, but we don't receive the wrath of God. We've received his mercy. 
So I love this. Now, this is the foundation. This is why grace is first. It's first in priority and in necessity. Because the other thing is, to know grace, truly know grace, is to really become more like Christ. As we know grace experientially, we are really experiencing Christ, and when we appropriate it in our own life, we are becoming more like Christ. Knowledge with no grace, why grace has to precede knowledge, is like, forgive me for using a food illustration, some of you guys might be hungry, and I'm going to make it worse in a minute, but I can't help it, I'm Italian, and I lived in Italy for 12 years, so I use a lot of food illustrations. But in Italy, it's like an abomination to eat salad with even great balsamic vinegar, but you have to have olive oil on it. And it has to be extra virgin olive oil cold-pressed. Because olive oil is kind of like, it just smooths everything out. It makes everything palpable. It kind of takes everything and and balances out, it, it, it tapers, or it tempers and influences the flavor of the vinegar. So knowledge without grace is like a salad with vinegar and no oil. It's just this sour thing, and it's, it's got no smoothness to it, right? The grace of God in our life is what makes us kind of, it smooths us out. It's that attractive quality. It softens the sharpness. You see, uh, knowledge on its own is pretty, it's pretty boring, guys. Grace influences knowledge and gives it life. You know, you can't, you can't see knowledge, can you? I mean, you can on a test, right? If I were to give you guys a test today, I could see kind of what you know, what you don't know. But just watching you live life, like if I just watch how you handle yourself in the store, I don't know much about what you know, but I can see grace in action. When we have the grace of God working in us and through us, well, that's tangible. That becomes something palpable. It is something that seasons and and, and flavors, and I love that... Grace is even used to, um, or, or is, is compared to a condiment, like salt and flavoring. When Paul wrote to the Colossian church, he said, let your speech be seasoned with grace, right? Let your speech impart grace to the hearer. So you kind of picture this, this, this condiment, grace, and when we put it on anything, it automatically is better. It just tastes better. Grace is that beautiful attribute that, that, that we see in Jesus that we love so much in him because that is his nature. So anything plus grace just tastes better. It's, so we are seasoning our conduct with the grace of God. This is why we are to grow, first of all, in grace. So grace is a quality. 
Now, we talked about grace being the unmerited favor of God, and, and yes, it is. But here's how it becomes, here's how Peter's using it here. Um, kind of like an adjective, right, for, for a characteristic of our conduct. If the grace of God is his unmerited favor towards us, then that tells us that is his response to us despite how we have carried ourselves. We didn't earn his favor, right? But he chose in his gracious nature to give grace. So then if we grow in grace, what we're doing then is we're becoming more like this quality that we see in Jesus that we love so much that's so attractive in him. Listen, you know, Jesus was absolutely brilliant. Don't misunderstand me, but what were people drawn to in Jesus? How he handled people. How he responded to accusers and the needy. How he even responded to the arrogant and the wise of this world. See, the loveliest display of grace that we'll ever have, if you want to understand what grace is, you just look at Jesus. He was the embodiment of grace. People were drawn to him because of this. It was that sweetness of his grace. They could taste it. In fact, John, when he wrote about Jesus, let's turn there for a minute. We're going back in time from Pastor Mike's teaching through John. Go back to chapter 1. Look at what he says in verse 14. John 1, 14. He says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. He was full of grace and truth. Now jump down to verse 16, and he, and he says, And of his fullness we all have received, and grace for grace. Literally that there is grace upon grace. This is the fullness that you can experience and receive from God. It's his grace. It's amazing. So the exhortation then to grow in grace, turn back to 2 Peter As we grow spiritually, the idea then is that we begin to yield more grace. This fullness that we've received from God, from Christ, the Son, we then begin to share or exhibit to other people. Grace then becomes visible. It's something that's attractive. And if you've ever, if you've ever been around people who, who love the Lord and they just have a certain kind of grace in their life to the way they handle things, the way they, just their outlook, it's, it's completely permeated with grace. That's what we love to be around. We love to be around that. We don't want to be around vinegar, right? We love the grace. And so grace in action, if I were to put it in, 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 in like my own kind of, Definition, I would say grace in action is the knowledge of right things lived out according to the nature of God, lived out in meekness and, and, and gentleness. And so then as we grow in grace, to increase in grace means we begin to show more grace, right? 
We grow in grace, we show more grace. Grace is a response. And we know we have lots of opportunity to respond with grace or not respond with grace, don't we? I was borrowing Pastor Chris's car a while back. He was kind enough to let me do that. And um, I was driving through Lakewood. That's all I have to say. And I don't know if I told him this. He's listening. But I, I, was, I was heading to the church office here from uh, Point Pleasant, coming through Lakewood. And, um, or maybe it was when I was in Tom's River. It doesn't matter. But anyway, I was going through Lakewood. I will never forget that. And I'm in the right lane, and there's a car next to me in the left lane. But they're, ahead, they're just ahead a little bit. And they decided to make a right turn from the left lane and I'm, I'm right next to them in, on the right, into a Kaiser's parking lot. And I literally had to lock up the brakes, you know, screech the tires and everything, you know, and stop just about two inches short of the passenger door of that car. They figured out what they had done wrong after they got into the parking lot. They were kind enough to stop. And I thought to myself, you know, I, I really should tell them about their driving abilities. <laughs> And uh, I decided not to do that because I had, done, I had done that once before and didn't go very well. I was uh, on my way to teach a Bible college class, yes, a Bible college class, in Italy on a Friday morning. And as I'm on my way, a, a guy in a convertible did something very similar to me. I beeped my horn, and then he showed me a certain gesture. And... Something welled up within me. It wasn't the love of God. And I began to accelerate and pursue him. And I pulled up next to him, and I was screaming at him in Italian to pull over because I wanted to share the love of Jesus with him and tell him he shouldn't drive like that or do that to people. Um, and then I got to teach the Bible college class, and I stood there, and I said, I said, friends, you need to know how sinful your Bible college teacher is today. And I confessed it to them. Right? I didn't respond in grace. And if you have kids, many of you do, you know that you daily have an opportunity to respond in grace over and over again. Right? Listen, a house with kids is just more sinners in the house. It's the way it is. And, when they're, and, and, and that opportunity to, to respond in grace grows exponentially as they grow as well, right? When they're little, they're little sinners, and the sins are kind of like manageable. And they get bigger, and the, the, the sins get bigger. My kids are listening to me right here. And I haven't always responded in grace to them, and I've, I've confessed and I've apologized to them when I, when I did not. And then in the, just even in the marriage relationship. Two sinners coming together, you know, different personalities, different goals, different backgrounds, different perspective of life, seeking to become one and, and live one as one in the marriage relationship. It is incredibly challenging at times. I mean, I have no struggles in my marriage, but, you know, most of you do. I'm only kidding. My wife is listening, and she could spend the rest of this time telling you, how often I have failed in that. But this is the exhortation. This is the measure for us to look and say, am I growing 
in grace. The, the thing about this is grace is a really simple concept, but it's contrary to human nature. It's contrary to um, the way of the world, the way the world works. It doesn't work this way in the world because you don't get what you don't deserve and everything is based on a, re- a rewards system. And I grew up kind of under that in my, in my you know, religious thinking as a Roman Catholic. And I would be rewarded for my sins by punishment. I didn't deserve anything. And, and that's actually true. We don't deserve anything with God. But what I had wrong was it's not based on that. Because I didn't know about grace. Grace was a new thing for me to learn when I heard the gospel. But recently, we just, you know, we just changed our car insurance to try to save some money. And they told me on the phone, you know, we reward good driving. Uh, we, we give you a device. You have to plug it in in your car. And it kind of measures, like, if you're driving aggressively, if you're braking too quickly, accelerating too hard. Um, we'll, we'll, you could be penalized. But if you're driving with grace, we'll reward that with a lower premium. And I'm a little worried now because Mac told me how aggressive my wife drives, you know, in the parking lot. And so, (laughs) have grace, honey. We might be paying a higher premium. I'm just kidding. So, in God's kingdom then, growth in grace, grace is, is shown irrespective of performance. That's the idea. When we're becoming more like Jesus, we're becoming less rewards-based with each other. We're, we're not treating each other based merely on how we've been treated. And listen, I'll be the first to confess to you and tell you that that is not something that I do by nature. But by God's grace, his enabling power, we can grow in this way. But to do that, this is really important. To do that, we have to embrace grace for ourselves. If we have not embraced grace for ourselves, we will struggle to have grace for others. What do I mean by that? Well, listen, when I first came to Christ, my biggest struggle was to understand and to grasp grace. It was my I had a hard time believing and accepting that God is going to treat me not based on my performance until now, but based on what Jesus has done. And I struggled for probably three or four years just really doubting my salvation, doubting that this could all be true, that I could actually be a child of God because I knew how unworthy I was. I wrestled with that. I came from a very dark, dirty place in life. And because of that, now that I have fully, really embraced the grace of God, I tend to kind of be a bit, I have a different perspective than others who maybe have a different background. I tend to kind of lean more on, I like being big on grace in the sense that I trust that the grace of God is going to do, uh, accomplish its purposes in people. It doesn't mean that I always respond in grace, but I know what God is capable of doing because of what he's done in me. It's like Jesus said when he was rebuking the religious leaders about Mary of Magdalene. Uh, Mary Magdalene. Uh, they accused him of not knowing who she really was, and that if he really knew who she was, you know, he wouldn't let her touch her. 
<laughs> and Jesus got all over that and rebuked them. But he said, you know what? He said, the one who is forgiven much loves much. We've just got a lot to be thankful for, don't we? Amen? I mean, if you're coming from a, a bad background like I did, you're in good company. Because this is the kind of company Jesus loves to pour out his grace on. He takes us in, and he begins to change us. And uh, it's an incredible thing to see this grace in action. So let's close out with this last thought of knowledge. I wanted to give much more attention to grace than knowledge because knowledge is something we naturally gravitate towards because I think it, it, it feeds our ego. It's more natural for us uh, than grace. Grace is contrary to the way of the world and the way we think in our rewards-based system. But look, knowledge is important, right? It is essential to growth. Just because it comes second doesn't mean it's not important. It is. Because really, you couldn't know as much as you need to know about grace and about Jesus if we don't learn about Him by growing in our knowledge, right? We learn more about grace as we grow in our knowledge of Him, and we can measure better then uh, where we are in our goal to be more like Jesus. So we give precedence to things like the teaching of the Scriptures here. We give precedence to things that contribute to our growing in knowledge, right? We give precedence to all those things that, that help us grow and understand who Jesus is and who we are to be as people called by His name. Part of this is church itself, right? Knowledge is essential to growth. Church is essential to knowledge. Yes, we all have the Spirit of God, but God has designed things in such a way that we grow in our knowledge when we function as a church. We have the teaching of the Word. We have our fellowship with one another. The things that take place in the foyer before service, after service, we're all growing in, in knowledge. We're growing in grace together, and we learn from one another. And that's the beauty of a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night. When we come together and we worship God corporately, I'm learning about Him as the words of the songs minister to my soul. I'm learning about Him and, and, and what He does in people's lives as I look around the room and I see you, hands raised towards heaven, singing the praises of Jesus. I learn from that as we all draw near him together. This is the unique aspect of, of the church gathering, right? And it's not just what happens inside these walls. It's what happens outside these walls. It's not just this church called Cornerstone. We had our conference recently, Connect Conference. What an amazing time. We got a chance to hear from other denominations, other churches that we, we, we I have never even seen them. I don't know where they are, but man, what a blessing to receive from them. I learn from them. They learn from us. This is how God's designed the body of Christ. So church is essential to that. But the last thought I want to leave you with is that knowledge is relational. 
to know Jesus is a very personal thing. We don't just learn about him, we learn him. We don't just know about him, we know him. This is what he called us into when he invited us. In Matthew 11, where he said, Come to me, all you who weary and are heavy laden, you're heavy burdened. He says, and I will give you rest for your soul. He said, take my yoke on you, for my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Learn from me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. And that idea of, of, of his yoke is that we would be bound together with him, walking in harmony under that yoke, just like two oxen that are walking together, we learn from him. There is a relationship. We are doing life with him. We are side by side with Jesus. It's an amazing thing to consider. Eternal life, in the words of Jesus, is a relationship. When Jesus prayed for the disciples and everybody who would believe in him after them, that's us here today, he said, this is eternal life, that they know you, the one true God, and him whom you have sent, his son. Eternal life is, is knowing God, knowing Jesus. This is the primary meaning of growing in knowledge here. It's not so that we can know many facts. It's we learn by doing life with Jesus. And he invites us into learning more about him. He promised he would manifest himself to us if we would hold tightly to his word and show our love for him in living according to his word. So there it is. Grow in grace and knowledge. Growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. It's been said that the Christian life is like riding a bicycle. If you're not moving forward, you're going to kind of fall over, right? And so by God's grace, may we continue to move forward together, encouraging one another, stirring each other onwards in Christ, doing life with him, doing life together. I'm excited for that process. Are you? Let's, let's grow in grace. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we're humbled by your grace, often reminded how far we are from the mark, the goal of being like you, Jesus, so full of grace. Lord, we desire it. We know we love to receive it from you. Help us, Lord, to be vessels of your grace for others. Thank you for your faithfulness, Lord. We thank you for your commitment to completing that good work that you've begun in us. So, Lord, just continue to shape us according to your good and perfect will. Make us into those men and women that look like you. And it's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.